you like to know more? Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Simone. It is wonderful to be here with you today. What are we talking about? We are talking about communism because I've noticed an interesting thing happening, which is that many conversations about other issues seem to devolve really quickly into discussions about communism, weirdly. Like environmentalism seems to boil down to discussions about like capitalism being bad often when we've been criticized online or like, like our religion, for example, when we say that we're secular Calvinists, suddenly there are accusations being thrown around about how we worship capitalism. Like things just end up in this debate very well, it's quickly. It's interesting that you point that out. And I think one of the reasons is, and many right-wing YouTube commenters would point this out, Though I think they might be overreaching in this, although the evidence that you just cited does ring clear to me, and it is something I've seen over and over again, which is that sort of all progressive thought and all left-wing thought is ultimately aiming towards a communist system. Mm -hmm. And when they complain about things like the environment or uh, you know economic issues or systemic inequality, they are using all of those as sort of tools to recruit people towards a ultimate communist vision um, or a more communist-like vision. Now, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I will agree that there are parties in the U.S. that are trying to push for that. But here is something I found really interesting recently. And this is actually based on a Facebook post that, that, that discussed this topic. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really true. So I have some friends who are communists and I have friends who are libertarian, which I guess is sort of the opposite of the, the communist persuasion. And what's really fascinating is my libertarian friends typically try to live a libertarian ideal in their lifestyle, particularly the more extreme ones. So they will, uh, you know, go to the woods. They try to disconnect themselves from the larger capitalist system more broadly. They try to um, really be self-sufficient. Uh, when I think of my communist friends, um, even though it would be fairly easy to, under a capitalist system, start a communist commune, I mean, people have done this before, um, they don't really seem to be interested in pursuing that. They will sometimes implement communist values in like, you know, like they'll have a housing group and they'll charge white people more and they'll say, well, this is part of a communist value set because we're trying to increase inequality, but really that's just uh, price discrimination. That's a really capitalist thing. You're charging one group more because you think they can pay more. That is not, that's the, almost the antithesis of communism. And so one thing that's really interesting is why is it that the communist group is so disinterested in actually, they really mean when they say that they're interested in, in communism is they want to, to be this cast of people who redistributes resources. Um, or they want resources redistributed to them to do whatever they want, but they don't want to do the type of work that produces excess resources, um, which I think is really shows sort of a fascinating inclination here that a lot of the people who are drawn to this are drawn to it because they see it as a system that helps them extract things from other people to let them do what they want instead of fully participating in it, which I think what we would see if most of the communist people who we saw in America today tried to build their own little communes. Um, so what but, I'm hearing from you is like, arguably, technically, like a libertarian family 
that we'll say is like living off the grid or doing, you know, whatever, you know, living yeah. their independent life. But they're also a family is literally more communist in practice because families are sort of the simplest communist unit out there. Um, they're more communist in practice than many of the communists that you're Facebook friends with because they're doing it. Yeah, that right? that's a good point, actually. And this is something we talk a lot about in our governance book, which is the most common form of governing system you have in the world is a communist system, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. That's what a family unit is. And that's often the way most small governance are, whether you're talking about like a soccer team or like a, uh, you know, m many other forms of small, like uh, adaptive governance systems. Um, and it's also why when you see small governance systems that focus on this level of equality or that aim towards communism, like kibbutz systems, it appears to really work well at a very small level, hmm. but it begins to break down as the governance system gets larger and heavier. Um, and we go into in our book a few reasons why this happens. Uh, okay, so the first, do you want to get into this now or do you? Do Let's you wanna... get into it. Why does communism not work, Mr. Collins? Well, above certain population limits. Um, so it is actually the most stable and common form of governance in the world. Right. Like our own, our own household is literally communist. Yeah. I mean, my kids don't produce for us, but like naturally I'm like, oh yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you they stuff. They contribute for free. cuteness. Shut up. That you're very productive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't. I, well, oh, yeah. We made one of our kids get a job at birth. Remember that? Uh, for oh, yeah, they, they paid him for his poop. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first, first kid, just right away, sit him to work. Yeah. Child labor all the way. But Cash anyway, positive. It was great. So, so proud. Uh, to take a step back, uh, the power consolidation problem is the first problem. So when you talk with communist people today, um, they typically fall into two camps. One I would call sort of the anarcho syndicate camp. And this camp wants to really minimize any hierarchies that exist at all. And then the other is sort of the tanky camp. Um, and the tankies really like centralized hierarchies and they want sort of a central person at the top to decide where resources are going. So the anarcho-syndicist camp creates systems that have huge power vacuums. So if you create a perfectly hierarchical hierarchy less system what you allow to happen is any individual group of people within that system who band together and create a sub-governance can then begin to accumulate power and resources they need to subject their ideology on other people this is this is also a problem in like overly libertarian systems. Um, now you could say, oh, well, then we'll create some sort of police force that prevents people from like convening and it's like or or sharing ideas so you could get sort of an ideologically aligned group that could begin enforcing its values on others. And then it's like, well, then you've sort of defeated the whole point of anarcho-syndicism. That's where you get these power vacuums. But then if you centralize power, you have a secondary problem which is you create a target for the least ethical within a society. So within a centralized power hierarchy, like you have within most sort of tanky communist systems, uh, which are really more sort of like dictatorships where you have one dictator at top and then little dictators below them all the way down, moving up within this hierarchy is typically determined by one's 
the amount of time one dedicates to politicking um, and the ruthlessness of an individual. Um, because there is typically, like if I am a dictator within sort of a strict hierarchy um, and I know that if I lose power, uh, it becomes almost sort of necessary for the people who used to have that power to kill me, then the types of people who I am going to promote as my underlings are going to be the most sort of ruthless. Um, and so this creates a system that leads to the rise of some of the most sociopathic people within a society. Now, within democracies, you also get disincentives. So um, like, like true capitalist democracies, right? Uh, where typically you get sort of these obsequious wiener liars typically seem to do better in elections than um it's it's true like capital like capitalist democracy selects for weenuses um <laughs> and i think we have all seen this in our politicians but there is a difference between your typical weenus from your like strong man sociopath who is is uh so you lead to sort of different levels of, of badness uh, so that's one core problem you have uh, the second core problem you have is what we call the HOA problem. Um, so as we've discussed, well, actually, let's go back to the other one really quickly. So some people are like, oh, yeah, but what you could do is you could have sort of a dictatorship, right? And then have this dictatorship set everything in place so that the system could transition into a more anarcho-syndicate system where they have put the governance structures in place to have the systems that stamp out any like sub-governance that's beginning to form, right? Yeah, yeah. And the problem here is this is a bit like you create a castle, right? Like the castle is this big defensible governance structure. And then you have to get everyone to agree to leave the castle at exactly the same time. And if anybody decides to stay in the castle, well, then they can just close the doors and they have all the, the guns and the weapons and the systems necessary to exert their influence on society. And even if everybody does really intend to leave the castle, their knowledge that anyone else could stay in the castle prevents them from leaving the castle and causes fractionization and is, is one of the problems you have. Because, I mean, many, many, many people, I, I love it. When you talk to a communist and, and they're like, well, no one has really created a communist system before. And the answer is, well, like, do you not think that anyone has tried? Like, <laughs> over the past hundred years, there have literally been hundreds of revolutions where the ideology was to create a communist system. Like, why do you think that no communist systems currently exist? It's because transitioning from an ideology to a practice can be very, very difficult. And you can describe an ideology that can sound like it works, like the upside down pyramid example that I always give. But if you try to build an upside down pyramid, it always collapses, collapses into the same shape, which is this sort of tanky dictatorship. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you see these unstable structures collapse into. Then the second problem is even once you get this more tanky dictatorship model, you then have another problem, which is the HOA problem. Uh, what happens within a communist system, the hierarchical model of a communist system, which is the model they all collapse into. So, so a lot of people imagine, oh, I've got my group of like punk friends, right? And uh, punk communist friends and, uh, you know, we're all like scraping by, but when we transition to a communist system, we're going to have all the power, right? And, you know, yes, that actually sometimes does kind of happen within the first generation. The kids get all the power. I mean, this is what you saw was like Pol Pot. This is what you saw like Red Scarf Girl, like, uh, you know, 
um, uh, in, during the Chinese Revolution. Um, and usually these are really bloody and terrible. And it turns out that these people are much more brutal than you would expect them to be. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, I guess not more. I think a lot of people know how, how you know, uh, willing to dehumanize others these groups actually are. But um, within a generation or two, you always end up with a societal structure that looks very similar to our existing societal structure, where the kids who would have been punk communists today within our societal structure become punk capitalists in their societal structure um, or counter-revolutionaries or whatever. And the people who are the principal of your local high school or who are the head of your local HOI are the equivalent positions within the communist system. These are the And HOA stands for Homeowners Association, yeah. which is a hated institution within any society that has them. Yeah, yeah. Because and they get run by busybodies who have the most time, not the competent people who are probably best suited to run homeowners associations. Well, and that's that's actually the point is that these organizations often the reason why is because if the individual is competent within a communist system and we're talking about a well operating communist system, they get promoted to higher levels of this hierarchy of power. I mean, presumably that's what everyone wants. And so the people at this like mid lower level management, you know, the communist versions of like line managers at a McDonald's um, these are often the least competent and most transparently power hungry people to the extent that they can't move higher within the hierarchy. Now, this creates a big problem because what it means is you are essentially empowering this lower level of the pyramid within the communist or within these anti level communist systems. When you're talking about things like a, a public school principal, or your local line manager at a McDonald's or something like that, these people often have way more power, astronomically more power than they have within our existing system. And they are often the people least that you would least want to give that power to. One of the very cool things about capitalist systems is they give very little power to the people at the bottom of the pyramid. Now, a lot of people say that's horrible, but it turns out when people actually think about the people who are right above the bottom layer of the pyramid, they often are like, oh yeah, those are the people I least want to have additional power within our society. When your HOA person can't just give you a fine but can send you to a gulag, like that becomes <laughs> a problem uh, for, for individuals' lifestyles. One of the final problems here, well, not one of the final problems. So there's two problems that are the most intractable problems. One is a cancer problem. Uh, we'll, we'll just discuss this one really quickly. So typically, uh, we call this a square cube law of governance. So in biology, there's something called the square cube law, which basically means when you're talking about the volume of a organism, the density of things it needs for like bones and stuff like that increases much faster than its size increases as the size of an organism increases. This is also true for, for cells, if you're talking about like the volume of a cell versus the internal structure of a cell, uh, which is why you can't just like infinitely scale up the size of an organism. You have this same problem with governance systems. The more uh, weight you have within individual nodes of a governance system, the more communication you have between those nodes and the heavier that communication gets. Um, and what it causes is the cancer problem. And the cancer problem means that when you get a really heavy governance system, small parts of that governance system begin to sort of replicate and say they need resources they don't actually need. So they'll say something like, I need, uh, well, so like a tumor 
will create signals to the body that will like cause lots of blood vessels to form around it. Cause it says like, I need more nutrients than everything else around me. Um, and you, you, you see this within large companies as well. This isn't just a communist problem where they'll begin to say, I need more resources. Give me more resources. I'm really important to the structure of this governance system. And initially governance systems typically have something like an immune system that goes around and deletes these cancers as they form. But then sometimes these cancers will hide themselves. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm a, um, I'm like a diversity department or something like that. You absolutely need me. Getting rid of me causes racism. And even suggesting that you look into my budget is actually racist. Um, and so through using these covers, they can hide themselves from any sort of, uh, you know, deeper investigation. And that allows these cancers to grow and take up more and more resources within a system, leading the system to become less efficient. The final problem is uh, the command economy problem. Now, this one I won't go deep into because a lot of other people have talked about this and you can just find anything. Basically, it's just sort of an axiom at this point is people used to think that you could control an economy from like a centrally dictatorship position and you could do a good job at it. Uh, but it turns out it's just incredibly inefficient to do this. Um, and, and I'm talking about like 90% less efficient than other 98%. And it gets less efficient the larger the system gets. Um, and so when you have a command economy, when individuals can say, oh, I need goods, money or something I have. And there's ways you can create communist capitalist systems that try to adapt to this. But they're all still really bad often compared to just command economies. Now, all of the things that we've brought out might be resolvable in ways that they weren't before, which then leads to the question, is a perfectly equal system in which everyone has equal resources actually a positive system? Simone, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think that equal exists. Um, and this changed for me ever since I read Policy Paradox by Deborah Stone, a book that apparently is hard to buy now. <laughs> you can't get an ebook for it, but they made me read it at Cambridge when I got my technology policy degree, courtesy of you saying I needed a graduate degree. <laughs> yeah, I told her she needed to look fancy. I was like, you get, you need your fancy degree. Or no but there's, one this, there's this chapter in the book that is about fairness. I mean, the whole book is about paradoxes in policy, as you might imagine. Um, but this one really stuck with me because it was about fairness and it was about how as a policymaker, you can't really make a policy that is fair. So she gives something, the author, something along the lines of, um, you are a college professor and you are taking a cake to class and you must fairly divide the cake. So how do you divide it? Do you divide it evenly based on the number of students at class? Do you divide it based on who is hungrier, who is more in need of the cake, who worked harder, who has a better grade, who likes cake more, you know, who has a better glycemic index at the moment? It, there are all these different directions that you can take it and all of them would be fair, but you have to make that possibly arbitrary or at least values-based designation of what fairness is. And so it's, it's a little bit of a farce to say that there is such a thing as fair. Well, it's really interesting that you point that out because as we have seen within our existing society, um, it is the groups that are most affiliated with communist organizations that would argue that their groups need disproportionate resources. Mm. So they would say our groups are in some way deserving of more resources than other groups because of structural disadvantages or systemic yeah. racism or um, 
we've been mistreated more. We have less money now, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and even when they enter positions of structural power within society, they're like, yeah, but you really haven't made up for uh, past disadvantages, which is really interesting that they're often more interested in sort of the top of the funnel hierarchy in terms of um, resolving inequality and often mm. a lot less interested in bottom of the funnel hierarchy. Uh, what do, what do you mean by bottom of the funnel hierarchy? So um, they're more interested with seeing members of their group or groups they believe that are ideologically aligned with them in positions of senior management or senior government positions, as opposed to helping pull people up from the bottom. Hmm. And I think one of the reasons for this is, is because when a wealthy like Hollywood elite type is deciding that there is some level of inequality within our society, they are thinking among their friends who are part of those disadvantaged groups. Hmm. And when the problem is resolved within their immediate circle and within their immediate friend groups, the problem is resolved overall because they don't interact often with poor or actually disadvantaged individuals in our society. So they're not as interested in um, flowing resources in those directions. But regardless, it is very interesting to me that it is these groups and that it changes. When the groups that are predominantly drawn to communist sort of breakaway organizations change, the groups that the current communist zeitgeist was in a country says need the most resources change, which I think indicates it's about redrawing resources to themselves more so than, than anything else. Um, and another really interesting point is when I was talking about the HOA problem, this is actually something you see in practice with existing communist-like groups. You see this within like Chaz. You saw this within the anti-work <laughs> movement. People, I think, within communist groups are always really shocked when they see who the people running those groups actually are and they see those people talk. So if you talk about like the anti-work group, right? Like this was a group that was like, okay, we won't have anyone in a position of power. We have agreed. We are an equal organization. And of course, one of the moderators who founded the group is like, yeah, but I feel like doing interviews, so I'm gonna. Um, and the group didn't have any power to stop that. And this is what I'm talking about is one of the problems with anarcho-syndicism. You cannot stop the worst of your group, the lowest of your group from seizing power, mm. even if you want to. Um, and, and so you get these idiots seizing power. And then you have within Chaz systems, right? Like Chaz or Chop or whatever you wanted to call it, where you had these really um, something Simone, I don't know, the little local warlord guy who who took power there. And a lot of people would say, uh, though his name was Simone. That's why Raz Simone or something like that. Um, okay. Which is because the group didn't have, there was a power vacuum. They didn't have a system to prevent the worst of the movement from just seizing power. And this is often true when these groups talk about the leaders of their existing movement. Yes, they have their high level Bernie Sanders like leaders, but when you think of the people who lead your local offices or organizations, you know, you have this constant infighting, which leads to incredible lack of productivity. This is something that you've talked about, Simone, with the uh, communist coffee shop. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of cases. There was this, this one, coffee shop in Pennsylvania or sorry in Philadelphia that it was started by the daughter and, and I think her friend or maybe her girlfriend um, of an immigrant parent who basically bankrolled this cafe and then at some point the employees who had been hired who it was all sort of social justice themed um, 
I don't know, rebelled or complained about systemic racism against them and sort of tried to take it over. And it sort of got to the point where they had to shut the whole thing down because it was not really being allowed to run. Um, and everyone had kind of rebelled against everyone else and accused everyone of things. And it was complete mess. So yeah, not, not a great, not a great case study, but I don't know. I mean, what, what I want to ask you is why does it feel to me like all roads point to capital or it's not capitalism, communism online in, in so many ways. Because when... I think it's hijacking a lower order human emotion which is very easy to, so it's, this is the emotion of fairness. Um, and mm. uh, maybe we'll be able to splice in a video here. I'll see if we can do it without getting copyright striked. <laughs> of this great experiment where a capuchin monkey is given some cucumbers and is very happy to get these cucumbers. And then next to it, there's another capuchin monkey and it starts being given grapes. And it wants- For the, the same work. For the same work. And which are considered preferable, apparently. Goes nuts. It is so angry. And what it shows us is this anger we feel at unfairness within our society is one, an emotional subset we have had since we were early primates, likely before that. So it really is a lower order emotion. This isn't like some high position you're taking. It is, it is your monkey brain that is saying, be mad about this. But worse, it's a pain that we inflict upon ourselves so that capuchin was perfectly happy with the reward it was getting till it was able to compare itself with other capuchins that seemed to be getting a bigger reward for the same work yeah and i'm not saying that this is real anything that's affecting our monkey brain is a very real and painful emotional subset yeah it still hurts to see someone else getting something better than you even though you're both doing the same work yeah but so when you think about groups online right um and how they hijack people's brains this is a very easy form of mental anguish to inflict mm. upon an individual okay so you're saying basically people online and online is is kind of like um, a place for social comparison on steroids. You can very easily see what other people have that you don't. More followers, more money, more whatever, yeah. right? So they see that. Um, they may or may not see that these people are working equally hard as they are, that they have advantages they don't, and it's not fair. And that maybe in some ways the online world and social networks magnify that feeling of unfairness that people get, which would push us even further toward communist inclinations because we want a solution to that feeling of unfairness and justice through unfairness. And yet, practically speaking, unfairness is, it's, it's a natural thing that we're going to see. It's not something that you can actually resolve because there is no such thing as fair. Well, there are in the ways end. you could resolve it. I mean, you could alter people's genetics so that every human was born equally attractive, equally tall, equally smart. Well, you can't do that without creating a pretty massive dystopia, right? Well, I no, mean, you it would... would be dystopian. Their end goal is always dystopian. But I think with a lot of people, um, you know, if you sat them down and you're like, would you actually want to do that? Like shave off all differences between people so that you can have a truly fair system. I think many people would be like, yeah, that sounds okay to me. Like the, 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 any, any cost is worth any benefit, which to us, because we're people who are sort of seen as almost worshiping um, uh, intergroup diversity and, and, and uh, difference and the conflict that that difference creates and the progress that that conflict creates, um, 
you know, I, I really appreciate, I, you know, I view society as sort of a bubbling cauldron of ideas and ideologies that are in conflict with each other. And it is that conflict that produces better ideas and ideologies. Uh, whereas I think that many of these systems really want stagnation. They want a level of mm. calmness. They want a level of um, contentment throughout well, society. Or is it is it that people just aren't really thinking that far? They're they're right now just at that. Well, and I don't think they are. And this they're is they're capuchin monkeys sort of, who are right now very angry about someone else getting the grape. Yeah, and especially because online every day they said. log on, they so see you someone said getting it's a about grape. the internet highlighting these differences, and that mm -hmm. wasn't the point that I was making. Mm -hmm. The point that I was making is if you want to get someone to do something online, you know, you, you hurt them. And then you say, this is how I make the pain go away. Right. You can try to search for people who are hurting just sort of vaguely in the environment, but that's a lot harder because you can't really tailor the message to whatever is broadly hurting them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it, that's a, that's a harder pitch to sell, but if you can go to someone and immediately shows them some type of inequality in society that is directly impacting them, you cause emotional pain, then you sell them a pitch that resolves that emotional pain. And you don't just see this within the people who are doing communists, right? You see this within like the incel groups or like the men's rights groups where they will immediately prime someone with some level of unfairness that's existing within our society that causes uh, emotional pain. Okay, so says, I will I resolve this. To recap, like, this isn't just with communism. It could be like a guy saying, look at what this woman did. She left, you know, her husband of 10 yes. years for some wealthier Chad. And the solution is the red pill or MGTOW or whatever, right? Um, yeah, the solution is follow me, follow my ideology, get angry. So they, yeah. they, they because anger motivates action more than anything else. Um, well, but what you're, what you're implying here is a level of predatory action that I... Would I think be disinclined predatory action. So what you are thinking is, oh, these people are thinking about what they're doing. What I'm saying is the algorithm is organically lifting messages, tweets, etc., that happen to use these predatory hooks over the mm. tweets that don't. Okay, so what you're saying is basically those who perhaps are almost trained through reinforcement to yes. anger people and then propose solutions like these are those more likely to build followings because they're compelling messages that um, build interest and loyalty and attention over time. Yes. Hmm. No. Okay. So maybe that's why all roads point to communism. All roads lead to communism. But I mean, what's interesting and, you know, we'll talk about this more in, in future recordings um, is that these groups are very bad at actually motivating action once a person subscribes mm. to them. So uh, what's interesting is that communist systems are really heavy in, in real life. You know, they require a lot of effort, everything like that. But usually when people end up subscribing to these ideologies, they end up becoming very economically unproductive compared to other individuals. And they're not even able to produce offspring often. With, so the only way they're really able to replicate is through um, sort of poaching new members from like the larger social zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. But ultimately any group that doesn't reproduce is going to eventually die off. I mean, we've seen this historically over and over again. They can do really well for one or two generations, but eventually sort of the, the 
healthier cultural groups begin to develop an immunity to the tactics that they are using through sort of a cultural evolutionary framework. And by that, what I mean is that the, the cultures uh, that happen to be better at resisting this are the ones that survive. Um, and, and through that, uh, eventually the trickle of new members gets less and less and that the groups that are trying to get new members have to become increasingly more uh, blatant and transparently predatory in the way they are acquiring those members. Don't you think there will always be people who got the fuzzy end of a lollipop in a capitalist system who will choose to turn to communism as their solution, I, especially if they're drawn the by it. would say, but the communists are wrong. If you actually look at the people who support communist policies, they are typically not the people who are worse off in the capitalist system. They mm. are the failed sons and failed daughters of middle class and upper middle class individuals often. Mm. Um, these are people who, you know, grew up in, in houses in the suburbs and stuff like that. If you look at the groups who are actually often the most disadvantaged, the recent immigrant populations and stuff like that, they are some of the most anti-communist individuals within the system. Um, and uh, Isn't that because they're often coming from... No, I don't think that that's the only reason. I think huh. that they often have healthier cultures. And by that, what I mean is these are cultures that um, motivate sort of internal locus of control and and thus higher reproductive rates. Hmm. And it is these conservative cultures. Now, when I say a conservative culture, you can have a you know a conservative African-American culture or a conservative Latin American culture. Um, and these cultures may not vote Republican, uh, but they certainly have ideologies that are very, very, very to the right of what these predominantly, uh, I mean, I, I'd say middle-class childhood white women communist groups online um, would like to pretend. Um, and I think that that is why they're so bad at recruiting from these organizations that they claim to be supporting. Um, hmm. Which is, I think, why uh, you have seen so much of the communist rhetoric uh, within the United States move away from uh, sort of ethnic or, or racial discrimination and towards discrimination of LGBT populations, which the communist groups do disproportionately or are disproportionately able to recruit. Hmm. Partially because if you are born LGBT and you are in a more conservative or uh, a family structure or culture, you are not going to identify as LGBT. But if you are in one of these communist structures uh, where uh, LGBT identification uh, is, is more encouraged, you are more likely to identify as LGBT, which is why you're always going to see those people within these progressive communist groups much more than in their conservative counterparts. And again, when I say conservative counterparts, I both mean like democratic conservative counterparts, like traditionalist immigrant families or um, Republican ones. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts or? <sighs> I, want, I want to see how things play out. I, it's hard for me to imagine a world in which there aren't people who strongly favor communism or at least socialist tendencies. And I also wonder what role AI is ultimately going to play in this, because I feel like, I mean, I think AI really changes the way that communism can be um, implemented because you can remove the lowest common denominator being essentially the despot and you could put AI in charge instead. 
Now that could become really dystopian and scary, but it could also solve the problems with the highly competent entity. I, I do think that communism could enter the golden era, the age in which it can actually be successfully executed. But I also think that successful execution of communism or socialism, because of the problem of fairness that we've discussed, is ultimately going to be somewhat dystopian because there will be a judgment call of what fairness is. And that means there will be losers, no matter what, because, you know, but if, if you choose fairness, even what the seems losers like within capitalist systems are not often the ones who become communist. That is yeah. a communist talking point that is just factually untrue. What do you mean by that? What I'm saying is that the poorest families within a capitalist system are very rarely communists in their ideological tendencies. If I go to any of these poorer communities, they're often very religious. They're often very capitalistic. Um, and so I think that you are doing a disservice by repeating a communist talking point, which isn't true. What drives communist ideology more than anything else is um, actually we'll talk about this in the next video, which is how to predict revolutions.